You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 429, Morrissey playing the role of Del Boy Trotter, boomer men behaving badly, and a riot of rebellion, Mary Quant at the V&A. That's all coming up after the Sanford Townsend Band and Smoke from a Distant Fire. first heard this track in the late 70s i thought sure that the 
confident swagger of that track would lead to a series of hits but uh, the fact that this is the latest in our very little series of one hit wonders tells its own story terrific single it reached number nine on the billboard hot 100 in 1977 the sanford townsend band and smoke from a distant fire I'd never ever heard that in my life, and I really like that actually. I thought it was it was it was good fun, but then I I do have an endless tolerance for kind of chintzy one hit wonders, don't I? So <laughs> that's probably why. Welcome to the podcast from the Parish Council. It's episode four hundred and twenty nine. I'm Terence Stackham, and rising from her sickbed like a latter day Lazarus, it's Julia Harris. Hello. Sorry that I sound a, li- a little bit uh, like Chucky from Rugrats this week, perhaps even more so than usual. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, I've had that terrible illness that everybody has had. So apologies if I sound a little bit bugged up this week. But uh, hello. Thanks for having me. It's time for our universally popular Ooh. opening feature, Spot the Singer. Talk about it in the pubs oh, in Hastings. It's, it's nationwide and now I think worldwide, a phenomenon, I think. This is part nine of this massively crowd-pleasing uh, spot and i play you 30 seconds or so of a track and you the listener and you the juliet have to try and spot who it is no shazamming no sound hounding and um oh yeah last week we played uh blondie debbie harry and blondie having a spirited attempt at a reggae cover and the reggae theme continues this week combined with some attempt at uh, Christmas cheer because oh, Christmas oh, is only 52 days away. Oh no, and don't say that. I, I, I'm afraid it is, yes, as we record this. And indeed many towns, including many around here in Berkshire already have uh, the Christmas lights and decorations. Mm-hmm. They're in full flow, have been for a couple of weeks. So, anyway, this is one of the biggest names, uh, Jules, in rock music. Very big name. This is from 1985. Who is this wishing you a reggae Christmas. Every year I do the same thing. Christmas come, I wanna pack my bag and flee. I wanna get away from New York. I wanna find another place to be. So we're having a reggae Christmas Merry Christmas and a reggae New Year to you, Jules. And that was from 1985. 1985, yeah. Right, okay. I was big, gonna, big name. I was going to guess Marvin Gaye, but uh, I believe he passed away the year before, so that won't be him. It's not Bruce Springsteen, is it? No, it's not. It's the B-side of a single called Christmas Time, which reached number 55 in the UK, number 31 in the States. Um, it's Father Christmas in the shape of Summer of 69 hit maker Brian Adams. Goodness me. Wow. Well, that's that's not a record I shall ever be listening to again anyway, in fact. No. No, very ill-judged. And he also tries the old a bit of the old Jamaican lilt as well. The, the, you know, the patois and all of that kind uh, of... Yeah, that's not ideal. Not good. So, yeah, Brian Adams there. Yeah, we're we, we wishing you a, a Merry Christmas and a Reggae New Year too. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I appreciate the sentiment of our... Yeah, kind of I, him. I live without it. Yeah. It's a kind thought. Now, we like to keep an eye on Morrissey on the Parish Council podcast. Uh, well, you say like. We feel sort of... Duty. It's an obligation. Mm. Really, yes. 
Earlier this year, we discussed how his views on life are tending to veer ever more to the right. A couple of years ago, uh, we noted how he seemed to be working hard to lose as many fans as possible. And way back in 2015, you and I, Jules, we both suffered in the name of this podcast by reading Morris's novella, List of the Lost. Oh, we did. That was a singularly unenjoyable experience. If I yeah, so it was more like the time that I've lost rather than List of the Lost. Um, he's back in the news this week, Jules. What's Morrissey done now? Well, something unsurprisingly tedious, as you might say. Well, not not tedious, really. It just I think it goes to show how how far Morris's star has fallen, really, and how the more terrible things that he does, the the, the harder it would come to his fans who are all i know that we often talk about wokeness on this podcast but are all towards the kind of more liberal end of the scale um and and partly due to bands like the smiths uh, being champions of the outsiders that's what makes this this morrissey turn of events so so upsetting and he is well he's going on stage wearing a t-shirt that says f the guardian because i gave him a bad review so obviously that's not ideal but um he is and i think he's he's obviously you get the impression you know he's not selling out stadiums i doubt he will tour here again it doesn't seem very likely this is he's in the states at the moment doesn't seem likely he'll come back to to the uk i don't think and so you can understand that he's looking for uh, to maximise income streams. And, and so if not as many people are coming to your gig, you think economically you'll get the people that are coming to your gig to spend more money. And then that way they make up for other people that aren't coming to spend money. It's a difficult balance to get, but that's a possibility. So yes, OK, fine. That makes economic sense. So what sort of merchandise might you, show, you sell at your, at your store? That's a good thing, isn't it? Merchandising is, is you've heard we've heard of bands as Blair once bitterly put it when they were on their uppers in the uh, in the early 90s blur said that we basically went on tour to america to sell t-shirts and there is there is an element of that that you know there are there is a good way of buying merchandise i went recently went to see Catherine williams and enjoyed her very much down in brighton and she was selling her career spanning box set and she's on a, an independent label who had the good sense to work out that it usually retails at 70 pounds which is good value for 10 albums and 10 mm. bonus albums and two books but they said that she could sell it for 50 pounds at the gigs on the basis that people had already bought money bought a ticket and Mm. so spent money to see her and you think well that's that's very reasonable isn't it that makes sense so perhaps morrissey might do something similar well he does have um he does have a back catalogue for sale on his uh, on his store but curiously they're not his um so he's selling you copies of um raw power by iggy and the stooges lou reed transformer hunky dory by david bowie uh, horses by patty smith all excellent albums united by the fact that they're not by morrissey i would point out but uh, they're all really really excellent records and a huge influence on Morrissey so yes okay I can understand why Morrissey might be selling you know selling records mm. of him but where is the link the link is is that Morrissey has very kindly signed them for you so, other so, people's albums so so you can buy a record that's not by morrissey which i have to say would be my preference nowadays because because <laughs> difficult political views i don't find his output look output to be particularly satisfying nowadays but you could buy a record that's not by him which i would very much prefer but still signed by him i don't i don't understand i don't understand why you why if you're going to see morrissey in concert you want to buy a record that's not by morrissey i mean to be brutally frank i'm not I'm, i don't understand why you go and see morrissey in concert now anyway but if you did want to go and 
Tracy Morrissey in concert. Now, why would you buy a record that wasn't that wasn't his? And why is the fact that he's signed it makes it special? It does seem incredibly. Well, he just seems detached from reality. <laughs> nowadays is probably the the only way I can put it. It seems doesn't seem to bear any kind of logic. It seems to it seems to assume a kind of obsessive devotion. And there is a hardcore Morrissey fans that will go mm. and see Morrissey whatever frankly and and that seems to be a heckler was ejected recently i think for 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 some reason it's it's all very it's it's all very it's it's gone just when you think the world of morrissey cannot get any more strange it does the thing is with um with the morrissey brand now so toxic it's probably he's, he's actually created a negative effect on these albums by signing them it, it's very probable that their value was dropped by you know his scrawl all over them um, assuming he sells these albums by artists far more talented than himself with his own signature on them at all of his gigs i suppose then there must be some sort of demand for them but I, I think what is so sad about this is that as his fan base diminishes steadily i suppose he i suppose he's now reduced to milking the most dollars out of fewer and fewer people it's a very that's, sad that's, decline that's it isn't it really that's exactly like we say it's trying to work the economics of having less people coming to see you but trying to work trying to work them for either the same amount of money or just to break even really it does seem very and, and of course the one thing that i didn't mention is it, it's, it's strange enough that he's signing other people's albums anyway really. but, the, but the, the the cost of them is three hundred dollars which oh is my god four pounds ago i mean as, as this bloke on the enemy website puts it i still might buy the iggy pop record because it's really good but it's uh, it's difficult to uh it's just difficult to fathom like you say it is quite sad although i would find it sadder if he hadn't been so massively inflammatory racist in the process frankly so that's him considering, really, that a $20 album is now worth $300. So that's $280 of that value is his signature on it. Quite. And in fact, if anything, he should be paying me to take it away because <laughs> he's defaced it, is my view now. Coming next, when boomer men behave badly. That's right after one minute and 56 seconds of Nirvana. i 
often think it's a shame that that song's so so short. I have been known to loop it in the past because I like it very much. I would like more of that song. Um, it taken. It, it was a sort of a casual. You might have found yourself having to turn up your uh, your your headphones or, or listening device in order to listen to that. It was a bit of a. Um, it was a bit of a casualty of the of the 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 loudness wars, which were mostly conducted by uh, American engineers and 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 producers in the early nineties. Um, but I do rather like that. I must admit. It comes from their last album, the last sort of full studio album in utero, and that's Nirvana and Very Ape from nineteen ninety three. We sometimes note how time zips past, but uh, here, here's another example. Kurt Cobain would be 52 now if he was still with us. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, Courtney Love is 55, and uh, Francis Bean Cobain turned 27 this year. So, Wow, yeah. absolutely. The age that her father was when he died. Gosh, that's really strange, exactly. isn't it? That's how time zips along. There's a, a cutting phrase that young people to use to people like me when I say things like Kurt Cobain would be 52 now. And that retort is, OK, boomer. Um, it's, it's a less painful way of saying, all right, old timer, uh, dial it down a bit. Yes, it's, it's, it's the modern equivalent of granddad, isn't it, really? <laughs> it is. As um, baby boomers are, are people born between 1946 and 1964, I fall into that category. I'm the archetypal, uh, archetypal boomer. Generation so people before boomers, then do we know? I don't know. I don't think if they were categorized, I think there wasn't really everybody was just the same, weren't they? Nobody, I don't know. My dad was a war baby, which was oh, I see. 45. So oh, that's a, yes, I'd forgotten that war baby, yeah. Yeah, that that but before thirty nine, yeah, I don't know. I don't sure if there were categories. Um, Generation X is anyone born between nineteen sixty five and nineteen eighty, and as we know, your category, Jules, born between nineteen eighty one and two thousand, you're a millennial. Indeed, uh, yeah. And with anyone born after two thousand being referred to as Generation Z or Generation Z, but it's my fellow boomers. Uh, generation Y. I thought they were Generation Y. Oh, are they? Oh God. Well, who who knows? Right. I've seen different different variants. Mm this because i've seen um generation x end in 1977 and in the year i was born 1984 and 77 to 83 being defined as xennials and i've got a few friends that are uh, are xennials and it is very telling that they are almost on that exact point between you know putting you know putting punctuation in text messages and having cds that sort of thing it's it's very sort of you're very straddling the divide there but anyway i feel we've digressed well yes taking our attention today is is uh, the the boomers um now one of the the great difficulties is that many boomers by the very nature of that circle of life are now quite elderly but just when they should be revered for their lives work and perhaps should be settling down into the autumn of their lives um it seems, well, why is it, Jules, that many extraordinarily famous baby boomers are turning their worlds upside down? It's, it's strange, isn't it? There's, there, there seems to be a sort of an explosion explosion in boomerland, particularly male boomerland. Ooh, it's all, oh, it's all men, yeah. As yeah. this observer 
um, the, the Transatlantic Observer, um, talking about the 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 at the beginning of the year. Graham Nash, um, seventy three, known as the for decades as the nicest and most thoughtful man in rock, had filed for divorce from his wife of thirty eight years, um, and that he had apparently um, a photographer half his age was the reason. Uh, Donald Fagan the next day from uh, Steely Dan, um, who was sort of seen as very literate sort of seventies rock, mm. um, alleged, arrested after allegedly pushing his wife against a marble window frame. Um, all, all very, all very odd and all very, all very bizarre. And it would seem that um, this article is quite thoughtful because it talks about whether or not we hold rock stars to a higher standard. So uh, so the idea that, you know, celebrities have been married for years and years and years, when actually when you look at the trends in people generally of their age, it seems like, this is interesting, the spiking boomer divorce rate, Americans over the age of 50 are twice as likely to get divorced Gosh. as they were 20 years ago, which Gosh. is a really, really arresting statistic, mm-hmm. isn't it? What's what's happening to us, really? Is it just that, sort of, you know, these, these previous rock stars who we've seen as being very kind of you know not not rock this is weird we hold different rock stars at different standards we seem to be able to only treat people as having one persona and that's the persona which mm-hmm. they at the beginning so if someone starts off as a sort of a bad guy they always have to be a bad guy and similarly if anybody starts off as a sort of a goodie or a nice a nice man the nice one of a band and there's only ever seems to allow to be one nice one of a band it would seem in some cases if the nice one then starts behaving badly we're even more disappointed than we would be if they were someone ordinary i think it's very it is very strange there was um it, it it seems odd that men seem to be the ones that that men seem to be the ones that that behave badly yet men also seem to be the ones that are forgiven the quickest which is which is really really strange it's it's it seems like i don't know if it's just a, a, a male thing if it's just men that seem to go through various crises in their life I don't know. I, I'm struggling to find a way to, to sort of rationalise really this. Maybe it's maybe it's that we all go through struggles in our lives, and there are there are times of our lives, both men and women, that that make us more vulnerable to want to change things or to make us more unhappy. But it's just that when it comes to women, in most heterosexual relationships, it seems to be that the pressure is on the woman to be the one that holds things together. So it might well be that these women do want to want to sort of misbehave and run away. But they don't, by and large, because they're the ones that have to pack the lunches up for school the next day. And they're the ones that have to hold it together, whereas men seem to find it easier to do a bunk, it would seem. And similarly, if if a woman does flee, if she does decide she's going to leave, we always know about it, don't we? When it comes to sort of biographies of various people, we, it, it always seems to be considerably more shame attached to a woman leaving her family than a man leaving her family, it would seem. These... May December relationships. The December is nearly always the bloke, isn't it? Um, of course, many of these oh, many of these relationships where a bloke has left his perhaps no childhood sweetheart, wife, or a younger woman, often very younger, they can work out. Michael Douglas, Catherine Zeta-Jones, still together after twenty years. Uh, Woody Allen and Sun Yi, uh, still married after twenty-two mm. years. Just the thirty-five-year age gap there. There were, there were other there, there were, were other, other circumstances it can, it can look a little creepy even in this enlightened era to see some elderly geezer hanging over the shoulders of a, a young attractive woman one aspect i don't understand is how how some famous people are rightly clobbered 
Yeah. For appalling behaviour, Gary Glitter, Bill Cosby, Weinstein, these sort of people. But others, a famous now deceased UK disc jockey and a deceased chameleon rock star, both of whom took advantage of underage children in a sexual way. But we don't mention it. Why is there such hypocritical thinking on this? I don't know. I think to some extent, I don't know if it's easier to contextualise things with time. I don't know. But it would seem that the the disc jockey that you that you spoke about had expressed regret as they become older about it um the interesting thing is is that i'm not saying that it is ever acceptable but equally it you know they, those people that behaved in that way um, this that was 30 40 years ago in in those cases i think the people in in this case who are behaving badly are doing so now and it seems it seems it, it's not you couldn't sort of write it off to the folly of youth or different social attitudes at the time so this behavior that we've read about in this article seems to be happening now so maybe that's a factor in it i don't know although perhaps to some extent more cynically you could say that you know some people might be too cool to be bad i don't know i think possibly that's more likely to be the answer coming right up back to the 60s with juliet mary quant um that's right after this amazing cover of Steely Dan. It was recommended by uh, listener Phil Turner. Uh, this is Ivy. The world become one Salad and sun Only a fool would say that A boy with a plan A natural man Wearing a white stand sun Thank you. 
tricky uh, for bands to cover Steely Dan, but that is, I think that's just fabulous. I love um, it. Yeah, I really love it. Mm, so great thanks to listener uh, Phil Turner for pointing me towards this uh, from their 2002 album of cover versions called uh, the album's called Guest Room and featuring a really lovely voice of Dominique Durand. That's Ivy. And only a fool would say that really great choice i really enjoyed that i would never have heard it otherwise i suspect no, me too um absolutely the the influence of fashion can often be i think it can be overstated if you watch movies or read books by people who weren't there you could find yourself believing that the whole country here in the uk in 1977 was wearing leather trousers trousers mm. and clash t-shirts when the reality was far from that now 1960s fashion and the influence of some key designers did have quite an impact though i think my my, my view on this is that it was because some key events came together it was the revolution of pop music led by the beatles the introduction of colour television and to a degree colour film and the desire of young people to escape the dull grey atmosphere of uh, post-war Britain Ooh. and suddenly everything in the 1960s seemed to glow brighter and partly responsible for that was a woman who revolutionised clothes and makeup. and this week Jules you went to an ex- exhibition of her work Yes, I did. I went to see the Mary Quant exhibition at the V&A and there was much to love about it. And I've, I've spoken to a, a, sort of a couple of women of similar age to me since. And it seems to be a good thing if you are a, a youngish woman, so a woman in your 20s and thir- or 30s, that, that has a mother who was alive in the, and, and a teenager in the 60s, I would thoroughly recommend that you go with it because it's a really lovely thing to do. And so my mum was 16 in 1969. And she, she, um, she said she didn't realise herself how much there had been of a profound influence there had been because we both wanted to go because I've always been very interested in sixties things. And Mum said, "Oh yes, I think I had a couple of her things." And so when we arrived there, it then became apparent that I knew that my mum was is a dressmaker and always has been, and she made her own clothes in the nineteen sixties. And so it turns out that Mary Quant um, manufactured patterns. So if you couldn't afford to buy oh. a dress, although they were, I didn't know that. So she did. So so even though they were so her goal and it was really enjoyable to it was a, and it was excellently put together exhibition. Her goal was to make young to make fashion affordable for young women. She was sort of Mary Portis is nicknamed the Queen of the High Street, mm. but she was sort of the Mary Portis of her day, and that she wanted sort of young and not necessarily the, the difficulty is is that it did make fashion more accessible up to a point so it didn't she's not quite new look level if you see what I mean it's not extremely it's not extremely cheap but equally for working women that were working in reasonably well-paid jobs she actually pioneered kind of day wear that women could buy and she and they and they manufactured patterns she had sort of deals with all sorts of people mm-hmm. and my mum used to buy Mary Quant patterns and make Mary Quant dresses <laughs> and the patterns so it was it was really interesting my mum said at the end she didn't realize how much of the stuff she'd had until we until we looked around and I I really loved it because it was it really hit home to me how sort of democratic she was in that she I don't think she came from no money if you see what I mean Mm. but she did things like so there was she had a big makeups arm and actually the makeups arm still seems to be going in Japan there are still 200 Mary Quant stores in Japan she sold she sold sort of sold the company off in 2000 I think but uh but that's still a big thing over there but what she would do is she would sell with it a tutorial so a piece of paper telling you what to do to achieve certain looks which I think was was extremely sort of freeing for young women really. Mm. 
come from that kind of background. So so I thought it was really good. It was quite a large exhibition. It was on two floors. Um, there were several video screens showing footage of interviews with her that I'd never seen before, actually. Mm. And it was at length interviews with her. She was, she was very interesting, just seemed like a very modest, nice person that was just very committed to what they did. Um, the other thing that I found quite amusing looking at the people going around, there were quite a lot of mums and daughters, I think, or, or, or older mm women together but the thing that really made us chuckle was when you looked round at everybody walking round it particularly the women sort of in their 50s and 60s that you could tell that they were Mary Quant fans because they were dressed they had <laughs> hair that was sort of and speaking of with a 60s haircut they had sort of 60s-ish haircuts and everybody looked quite simple yet quite chic at the same time and that was the, the sort of glory of Mary Quant closure they weren't very fussy we were amused by the fact that there was a Dior exhibition there last year at the V&A and or earlier this year I think and so they were selling the things side by side in the shop afterwards and we were quite amused because you couldn't get any further apart really than the sort of the flounce and the detail of Dior and Alexander McQueen when that was on there and then Mary Quant's simple kind of two three colour dresses they had a lot of material I loved the fact that um quite a lot of it would have been either lent or donated by women that had it or wore it or made it at the time. They used the hashtag we want quant to do a call out on social media apparently, which I thought was was really nice. So I thought it was a really nice exhibition because it felt like it had been very kind of lovingly put together. And it did really show off just what an innovator she was. And actually I although people everyone knows who she is, I don't think her kind of egalitarian nature is 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 truly appreciated really. And I, I had a better understanding of who she was and what she achieved at the end of it i think running exhibitions such as this current one featuring mary quant it's an innovative idea by the victorian albert museum but i got put off going to these exhibitions by my last two visits one was to a pink floyd exhibition another one was a celebration of the swinging 60s yes which we went to as well yeah i i mean i and that theoretically was very good the swinging 60s one uh i went to the pink floyd one under under duress um but any <laughs> any enjoyment i might have taken was marred by the sheer number of, of people admitted in one go in one go although we had time tickets and so there was restriction on the number of people allowed in at one time there still seemed too many people crowding around glass boxes displaying stuff which was also a bit too museum museum-y for me i staring at stuff in boxes not such a great day out but of course these days Everyone under the age of 30 seems to carry the most enormous rucksack on their backs, uh, perfectly placed to smash you in the gob as, as they turn round. And also, of course, these days, everyone wants to photograph everything with their smartphones. So the two exhibitions I went there were... were, were, were it was people clustered around the place with rucksacks and phones. And I, I couldn't see the exhibits, just rucksacks and phones. Well, so so we... When we first went in, we had time tickets and we went at quarter to two in the middle of a weekday in what was half term, although we hardly saw any children in there. It wasn't really that sort of exhibition. No. And um, and in, on, in the first room, I thought, oh, you know, this is this is going to be, you know, this is going to be completely chaos. This is going to be packed. And yet somehow 
either it got better or I stopped noticing it. And actually, interestingly, they, they either got the timing of the tickets better or the upstairs floor was quite large, actually. And when we went upstairs, it was they hadn't crammed a lot in. There was quite a lot of space, although there was lots to see. They put things in glass cases, but they put some thought into making displays. And I thought that the captions were extremely good as well, actually. But maybe because there was more space and there were less exhibitions, it, it, it didn't feel like it was too cramped. I went to see, oh, God, what was it? I can't remember, it wasn't that. It might have been at the Tate. We saw, I saw Lichtenstein years ago. Mm. And that was, A, crowded, but B, the thing that was so draining about that was there were about 11 different rooms, I think, of it. So by the end, I felt like I'd run a marathon, and I probably <laughs> had, actually, having gone round everything. So it's a difficult balance to get right between having it spacious enough that, 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 you can, that, that everyone can see, but then equally... Lots of people are going to want to see these things. They are popular. And just and, and finding a way of managing that and making sure you've still got enough kind of interesting things. So actually, I thought this was well staged in the sense that there wasn't loads there, but there was enough to make it really interesting. And actually, I thought that maybe it was the sort of audience at which it was pitched, mm-hmm. largely women and maybe older women. But I thought that everybody behaved very thoughtfully. So so there would be uh, video screens and then, you know, seats which you could sit on mm-hmm. Video screens and people were very good because they were on a loop. You'd obviously sit down, you wait until it got to till it's till you think, oh yeah, we've heard this bit, and then you move on. Mm. And actually, everyone there was very thoughtful in getting up very quickly and indicating to others that they were going and they could take their seat. I, I, it was quite a well-behaved exhibition. Oh, good. Well, maybe uh, particularly, as you say, they were in, in some big rooms. The, the two that I went to, the 60s one and Pink Floyd one, were in very small rooms and all on one floor. So maybe they've rejigged the whole exhibition right. yeah. area. That, that seemed to work really well, I thought. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that that would that maybe they maybe they've learned from your greatness, Terry. <laughs> now, listen here. Thanks very much for listening. Really appreciate you 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 being there and listening to us uh, again this week. Many thanks as always. And uh, thanks to Rona and Hilly for the, for their help too. Now a throwback to that Naverna track uh, earlier to to play us out. Yes, I continuing my loose theme that I've been enjoying mm. the last few was what I've been enjoying. I can't speak for anyone else, but I've been enjoying it very much of uh, finding songs that sample other songs. Um, we 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 played Fire or I chose Firestarter when Keith Flint died, and that famously sampled seven different songs. So the 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 project were not averse to a sample, but I thought that I'd I'd pick this one here as I think. Think it's quite a good use of the of the riff from very ape it's been kind of pumped up a bit but you can still tell i think that it's based mm-hmm. around that it's interesting that the prodigy used to sample so many grunge bands firestart was based on a sample of sos by the breeders so they were quite they were quite into that era of music which you wouldn't necessarily think of a rave band so it was mm-hmm. interesting also famously covering l7 uh, fuel my fire on their fact mm-hmm. the land album so uh, i do rather like this i like the song anyway but i think it's a good use of a sample so sampling very one of honor this is the prodigy and the voodoo people
Listening to a Parish Council production.